Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. While the recent storm has curtailed many activities, the Woody Guthrie Center remains open, and if you're looking to beat the heat for a couple of hours, the center has a new exhibit about the origins of disco. Now, at first glance, maybe even second glance, disco and Woody Guthrie appear to have nothing in common. But as my guests point out, the folk singer and the originators of disco both presented music that spoke to marginalized audiences. In disco's case, people of color in the LGBT community. It was a niche culture. Only once record companies saw commercial potential did the music change, as did the dancers and community that went to the commercial clubs that popped up catering to this dance culture. My guest today says that the success of this tune, Mano de Bongo's Sol Mucasa, an Afro-pop tune which became a minor billboard hit in 1973, changed how record companies viewed this niche music. Of course, it led to the hits, as well as all of the dreck of the disco era. Tim Lawrence is the co-curator of the Woody Guthrie Center's exhibit. He is the author of Love Saves the Day, the history of American dance music, 1970 to 1979, and was actually involved in the loft dance culture, uh, which spawned in the early 1970s. He's currently a cultural historian at the University of East London, and he's joined by co-curator Chloe Forte, a program manager for the American Song Archive and for the Woody Guthrie Center. The center presents Love Saves the Day, the subterranean history of American disco, now on display through October 8th at the Woody Guthrie Center. Tim and Chloe, thanks very much for joining us here on Studio Tulsa. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Let me begin with the idea of doing a, a disco exhibit at somebody who I, I guess many people would say, what's the connection to Woody Guthrie and the American Song Archives? Chloe, let me ask you about doing this particular exhibit. What's the connection? Or is there a connection? Or is it just good music and interesting music? There is absolutely a connection. It had been an idea for a couple of years before I joined the center um, to do a disco exhibit. And when I joined, I'd done some work with the House Music podcast in Chicago and some archives around electronic music. So I was asked to help out in finding source material and a curatorial consultant. Uh, and I knew Tim's book because around in the dance community, it's kind of regarded as um, Bible, I suppose. It, because he managed to do so much oral history and talk to the direct sources of the scene, I reached out to him and his book prominently features David Mancuso, the figure of who relates very closely to Woody Guthrie and his uh, politics and values and approach to party making and community building. And so we thought that would be a really good bridge and showing kind of the grassroots beginning of a genre that most people don't regard very highly. And I love the fact that you you do see a connection. And because as we went and toured the exhibit, and on the way out, we happened to glance at a few of the, of the Guthrie, and it was like, oh, there's the connection. A class that was sort of outside the margins of the mainstream that had right. this identifiable source of art, if you will, or music that brought people together. Yeah. And both Woody Guthrie in his own ways in the 30s and 40s and disco music and the people like David Mancuso sort of served very similar functions. Tim, I wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah, I mean, it's um, this is, you know, these are, you know, idealistic musicians who um, 
are deeply committed to social progress. And that's the commonality. I think if for some people who get really into the music, um, there's something going on there that is inherently about connecting with other people. Um, you know, one thing that is, you know, said about the way that music was organized during the periods of segregation, for example, was that, you know, music sound waves or music moves across the kind of barriers that society sometimes wants to put up between groups of people. Music is vibration. Uh, music enters our bodies and inherently connects us with, you know, things that are outside of ourselves. I know a lot more about David Mancuso <laughs> than, than I do about Woody Guthrie. But there's clearly this very powerful alignment that, you know, it wasn't just about social progress. It wasn't just about music. It was about the way that these two seem to kind of embody the same thing almost. Like, this is what music really can do for us if we devote ourselves to the music. It was interesting. I think there was a there was also sort of an open, uh, there was a real open-mindedness about the, you know, the way that, you know, music could operate as well. It was all all about how music could take on these different resonances when when it goes out into the world and enables people to come together. So it becomes, you know, although music can start off sort of quite small in terms of musicians who might go into a studio to record something or perform, perform live, as it connects to communities, what it enables is, is social change. And, and really, uh, one of the things the exhibit points out, and I imagine your book does the same, is this music really follows in the wake of, of Stonewall. How important was Stonewall in the sort of connection of people coming together, like, and David, somebody like David Mancuso, who is sort of the person that started first having these house parties or loft parties that gained a following uh, that somewhat comes out of the European discotheque movement. But I, I think it's, it's mm. a very different animal in many ways. Can you maybe explain what that animal was that David Mancuso was doing in 1970? I mean, the first thing to maybe say about this is that David's key reference point was was this phenomenon known as the as the rent party, rather than the discotheque. Uh, the rent party goes back to the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, um, when African Americans living in Harlem, who couldn't afford to pay inflated rents to absentee landlords, started upon put on little parties in their homes and request a small contribution at the door in order to be able to pay their rent. And this kind of cultural practice or social practice continued. Uh, it had its highs and it had its lows, but it was still going on when David moved to New York City from uh, Utica, upstate New York, uh, in 1962. And this became his favorite way of socializing because he really loved the intimacy of these gatherings, uh, the privacy and the way that you build deep relationships. David's view of the discotheque scene, which kind of took root in France and to a certain extent Germany and then London uh, and came to New York in the early 1960s. This was uh, a more obviously commercial scene. It was sold alcohol. It was open to the public. Uh, but the whole scene was arguably more transient and it was also much more bound up by New York City cabaret licensing laws that introduced all sorts of restrictions, including restrictions around closing times. David was all about freedom and community and social progress. Um, I mean, you asked about Stonewall, and that was a, that was in a way a, a very significant moment. But it was the Stonewall was really the culmination of a whole series of developments that had already been in process for some time and would continue to be in uh, continue to develop for some time after that. And as important it was, it was also located within a, a broader countercultural movement in which young people, in particular, but by no means only young people, wanted transformational change uh, in the way that society was organized. 
I mean, the, the pillar of this movement in many respects, or one of the key inspirations for it was, was the civil rights movement that in itself mutated to the Black Power movement um, as the 1960s uh, progressed. There was also, obviously, related to Stonewall, the gay liberation movement. There was also the feminist movement. There was an incredibly powerful anti-war movement. And there was also a general desire for people to experiment with, with you know, forms of living um, that cut across the spectrum that would enable kind of a greater sense of freedom. Um, and this, you know, for many people, this involved taking LSD or experimenting with LSD. Um, so David sort of came into this as someone who was deeply immersed in the countercultural movement. Um, he had certainly uh, experimented with some seriousness with with LSD. And he decided to hold a rent party of his own um, or start a rent party of his own that would begin on Valentine's Day 1970 in uh, a downtown loft that he had moved into in 1965 uh, with music played through a very high-end stereo system that he had already started to put together that featured these uh, iconic Clipshorn speakers that date back to mm -hmm. 1948. And he held this party on Valentine's Day 1970 um, and that happened to be a Saturday night. Uh, for David, he was as much interested or even more interested in sort of uh, the broad idea of universal love, uh, which was very much of the late 60s, uh, rather than, let's say, some narrower conceptions of love. And indeed, he was he really believed in the, the social potential also of, of love, say, of, of LSD, <laughs> I should say. So open up people to experience, to connection, to, you know, um, you know, spiritual epiphanies, all these things that people often associate with with that with that experience and so the love saves the day party as it came to be known was also a, uh, an lsd party mm. love being the l s being the yeah. saves being the s uh, and day being the d so yeah it was a pivotal moment in the the development of contemporary of dj culture uh, before this moment largely speaking djs manipulated their dance floors thought of themselves as puppeteers and were paid to make sure that the bar made money so intermittently, DJs would play a record with a, with a slow record to encourage people to go and dance at the bar. So there was no like relationship or conversation happening between the DJ and the dancers that could unfold across the course of the evening. Uh, that was a, that was the situation really in the 1960s. But with Davis Party uh, and a parallel party or discotheque that was kind of reinvented itself simultaneously, that was called the Sanctuary, where an important DJ called Francis Grasso was DJing. These two dance floors uh, effectively mark the beginning of what, what I like to think of as contemporary DJ culture, where it's all about the communication between the DJ and the dancer. And this really opened up the, you know, the, the potential of DJing to be a, a new and I would say quite radical form of musicianship. David's a really key figure in all of this, yeah. um, but he's not the only key figure. Right. And some of the videos that you have in the exhibit resembles a more recent times, a rave in, in many ways that sort of hypnotic music and the dancers just sort of becomes a, a rhythmic pulse even of, of themselves. Is that a fair thing to say? Or I think that's quite fair. I think that was also what was so interesting about um, Tim's research and the way that he approached some of the cultural observations of the scene, where a lot of folk music, the social progress or um, activism comes with the words chosen the social formations or the social progressions that occurred with this scene had a lot to do with how people were gathering and what kind of uh, material and immaterial environmental changes allowed for people to gather and 
get to know each other and reform relationship to each other. Uh, and like Tim was saying about the DJ culture kind of beginning at the early 70s, the change of the relationship with the DJ to the dancers and so the dancers to each other and back towards the DJ seemed to uh, be a real core foundational element for a lot of the social change that the exhibit and Tim's book delve a little deeper into. I would agree also with your point that it, it kind of resembles um, current club culture, club scene. There's a lot of the structure of the night is, is very similar. And I suppose that was the biggest surprise for me and hopefully something new for people visiting the exhibit to see that a lot of the elements of a nightclub, dance club culture, um, house party culture that I know I took for granted, a lot of it began in this period uh, and mixed a lot of various influences. I don't know, to allow people to enjoy themselves and, and, and form new communities. One of the things that sort of, I mean, the, the 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 comparison with like, you know, a rave scene is an interesting one uh, or contemporary club culture or dance culture. I mean, as, as engaging and as dynamic as contemporary DJ culture is and has the potential to also be. My overall impression, having kind of grown up through this, you know, the house music and rave scene effectively, uh, was that when I started to learn about uh, meet David and Vancouver and learn about what was going on in this very early part, this pre-disco really part of the 1970s in particular, but the culture, th this underground culture did continue to evolve throughout uh, in, and survived, uh, you know, the backlash against disco. But anyway, my impression of this culture when I first came across it was that it was kind of way more advanced than contemporary rave culture, for example, or club culture. The range of the music, the intensity of the journey, the duration of the party, the variety of, of different of, of people who were coming onto these dance floors and the vastly different social backgrounds that they came from and and, in, and yet, you know, congregated together. Um, I don't really, I'm not really convinced. There, so there are resemblances between what was going on in the early 70s and what came to kind of club culture and rave culture. But my sense is that what was going on in the early 70s was was much more open um, and, you know, we could say, you know, much more socially integrated and, you know, arguably more kind of expansive in its uh, musical ambition. There's no doubt about this. It's not even a supposition. It was just like you can't, you know, rave music is sort of like one one record playing all night long. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the 70s, there was this like each song had its own kind of internal universe almost. But there, but it's interesting, definitely. I mean, what 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 is going on is that human beings, you know, through the challenges that we all experience in our everyday lives, have a great need to congregate together in groups of other people to feel connected and at one with ourselves. And mm -hmm. one way of doing this is to go onto the dance floor. One of the best ways of doing this is to go on the dance floor because of the inhibitions, the boundaries, the attitudes, you know, ho hopefully dissolve away. And that's the connection. And this connection goes back to the very beginning of, of you know, human organization, that humans, in order to survive and order okay. to find a meaning to live, have danced yeah. to music and, yeah. and, and, and try to create some form of collective joy. Uh, and this was obviously going on at Woodstock as well, which just preceded what, what, you know, the opening of the loft and the emergence of what came to be known as disco culture. And yeah, it carries on in rave culture today. It carries on in, you know, marathons and people wanting to come together and get the yeah. endomorphins kind of pumping, basically. And uh, a lot of the conversation early on between Tim and myself had to do with um, the idea of the search for utopia and communities and building your own ideal space mm -hmm. if it didn't exist uh, and kind of willing it into being. Mm -hmm. And 
David Mancuso is kind of serving that same aim that Woody Guthrie's music served. And even though their uh, methods of attaining that utopistic vision might have been different, that that urge um, and drive to create what some people consider to be a childish vision, they both realized it for a period of time. Woody Guthrie Center is presenting Love Saves the Day, the Subterranean History of American Disco at the Woody Guthrie Center. And my guests are the co-curators, Chloe Forte, who's a program manager for American Song Archives here in Tulsa, and Tim Lawrence, who is uh, author of Love Saves the Day, the History of American Dance Music, 1970-1979, and a cultural historian at the University of East London. They're my guests today here on Studio Tulsa. Tim, let me follow up on something you stated a couple of times, and Chloe, you alluded to the fact that these early dance parties, it was not Mm -hmm. what we would call disco music. Disco music that people, you say, oh, that's disco music. This comes from the Mm -hmm. end of period of this music when it's been commercialized, greatly commercialized. What people were playing in early 70s was R&B, soul music, uh, anything that had a really good dance beat, world music, in fact. Uh, This was a sort of an amalgam and melange of musics that you would hear through the the evening curated by that DJ. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, there was no, um, this wasn't a recognized culture. I mean, to a certain extent, 1960s discotheque culture, what it was a recognized phenomenon. It did help kind of, you know, contribute to sales of rock and roll music. I think Billboard paid some, uh, paid some uh, interest um, to what was going on, but then it all died away and it never really became a, a full phenomenon in itself and there was never the sense that the the dance floor had let's say shaped this sound um so come early 19 the beginning of the 1970s when this culture started to kind of be effectively be reborn i mean partly because of the vision of some of the party hosts such as dave mancuso but also because in many ways a new this new demographic came on the dance floor a new rainbow coalition of dancers who were largely although absolutely not exclusively uh, people of colour, queers and women, uh, groups that have been somewhat marginalised or maybe even very marginalised within mainstream rock culture, found this new home on the dance floor. And it was their tastes, really, that DJs needed to pay attention to if they wanted to have a good party. And so DJs, you know, who had slips, you know, who were hardly recognised, well, weren't recognised as, uh, you know, as effectively as existing in the music industry or by the record companies, had to go around basically hunting down, searching for records that could, you know, could satisfy these dance crowds <laughs> that were absolutely passionate about this experience and started to really live for their Saturday nights. And so DJ, as you said, Rich, DJs were effectively going around making, you know, finding whatever they could. There was a lot of soul, there was a lot of R&B, there was a lot of funk, uh, but there was also was a lot of music, uh, rock music, when it was danceable. And indeed, there was African music, and there was Latin music, and there was music from Europe. And it was like, it was anything that had a beat, and also a message. This was very important as well, the idea that the music had some kind of meaning. Love Vince love- Letty, uh, who, who became the kind of key uh, music writer to kind of report on effectively the development of what came became known as a discotheque scene, uh, published his earliest piece uh, uh, about the rise of this culture in Rolling Stone in the autumn of 1973. And Vince, who was a regular at the loft, and in a way, the more you look into this culture and the more sort of stones you unturn, the, the more you realise that 
does sometimes seem as though everything does go back to the loft. Um, so Vince Aletti was a regular at the loft, uh, and he wrote this story, which was largely inspired by his experiences at the loft and related uh, parties. Wrote this piece in the autumn of 73, saying that this new culture was emerging that no one had really understood until, you know, but, he, but Vince was was identifying. And it was led by DJs, but also these, you know, very passionate, fanatical dance crowds. And a new sound was emerging on these floors. And it involved some of the sounds that we've already referenced, but it also uh, included a bunch of, you know, what we could call aesthetic or sonic, recurring sonic elements. And that would be that often there would be a very organic feel to the tracks. There would often be a heavy, a heavy emphasis on percussion and what we call the break, which is when all of the music cuts to just the drummer. Uh, a lot of the percussion and the rhythm would be uh, syncopated or polyrhythmic, uh, drawing on various sort of histories of African and, and Latin uh, music making. Uh, a lot of the uh, vocals would be chanted. Sometimes the chanting would often even be foreign language. It didn't necessarily matter for the lyrics to be English. And gradually into this situation also, there was a, a, a kind of an embrace of, of music that featured these orchestral strings. So Vince called this effectively discotheque music. Mm. That meant not what we think of as the disco genre, because that had yet to really be formalized. Or it was just coming into shape. What discotheque music initially meant was all of the sounds you would hear if you went to a discotheque dance floor, because the discotheques were catching up with these private parties, or a party such as the Loft, or the various uh, private parties that copied or were inspired by what David was doing. And when, when I view the history of this music, what I see is mm. an underground music that of, of amalgam of musics that break into mm. the mainstream, becomes hugely mm. commercial, and that, in fact, kills the music in a way. How do you see it? Um, they have a lot of the Billboard magazines through the 70s available online. And I was, Tim's book is very well indexed, so I was going back to a lot of primary sources that were referenced in the book just to also educate myself and going through Billboard, it's very interesting to watch uh, the amount of uh, articles and industry reports that don't include disco at all. And then by the mid seventies, um, they're having a disco um, conference. There's a couple of disco issues outlining uh, equipment and um, oh, you can watch the whole industry being built by just looking at periodicals from the time, what they say, or the lack of speaking about this culture to naming it outright and trying to get in on how much money it's making. So yeah. didn't know how large scale the um, confluence of, of the scene had become in and the mainstream. And of course, there's a lot of good late disco music, but there's an awful lot of bad late disco music. And I, I, I'm assuming that's what provoked the backlash. Was it, Tim? Yeah, it's complicated, um, I would say. But yeah, yeah, definitely that's what was, what was an element. I mean, uh, yeah, the, initially I would say, I mean, someone like David Mancuso, for various reasons, uh, wanted to remain outside of the public eye because his whole thing was like, I'm running a house party. And if you run a party in your own home, you don't want the media to know about it because it's a private thing. You're asking your friends and their friends are friends over. But the wider scene as it emerged and as DJing and the, the culture associated with G, DJing developed became popular, they were, you know, many people were grateful for the recognition, you know, to have a bit of income, to be paid for work, to have more records coming through. And it was a very exciting period. And a lot of early disco um, and, well, a lot of disco, as you say, Rich, all the way through, there was good music being recorded. 
I mean, it was di- it was kind of this culture, DJ led disco culture, if you like, that kind of led to the innovation of you know remix culture and the emergence of what we call the twelve inch single, um, which allowed DJs and remixers to extend a, a sing a recording so that it was better suited for dance floor consumption. And this, you know, was a whole art form that is, you know, in many ways is one of the defining elements of contemporary dance music culture. So disco was grooving and uh, was exciting (laughs) as it became more popular and as more and more people kind of, you know, and it was important that it's important for these kind of uh, subterranean cultures to kind of also be open to a wider public because the point is always, and, and it was for the DJs I was interviewing, why does social change? They wanted to change the world, you know, with this practice effectively. It was they were ambitious. But it did become somewhat diluted as it spread. And in particular, the opening of Studio 54 in the spring of 1977, which was really a kind of a celebrity discotheque. So it was yes. it was more about who was there and who were the stars than kind of throwing yourself into the dance ritual. So the opening of Studio 54 and then the release of Saturday Night Fever at the end of 1977 did mark a tipping point. And because of the success of Saturday Night Fever, during 1978, somewhat remarkably, uh, disco music actually outsold rock music during that year, just to give you an idea of how popular it became. But as you say, Rich, it did kind of um, become this music that was also highly commodified to the point where DJ uh, record companies that didn't necessarily particularly like the culture of disco, they they were more rooted in rock culture for the most part. But a lot of these record companies just thought, aha, we can make kind of a quick dollar or a quick few million dollars if we just put a bass beat, a disco bass beat under whatever the music might be. Right. And, and as you've said, Rich, quite correctly, this did lead to an, you know, an awful lot of second rate uh, disco being released. I mean, there was this backlash and the backlash was partly against uh, some not very good disco or even quite a lot of very di- not very good disco being released. And let's say this Saturday Night Fever having become this film that was very, very popular, but then somehow became a bit annoying. Right. But I do feel it's very important to acknowledge that there was the set, you know, the second downturn in the US economy coincided of the, of the 1970s, the first having taken place in 1973-74, the first recession of the post-war era. But a second recession started a loom in the late 1970s as the United States shifted from an industrial to a post-industrial society. And an awful lot of people, especially located within the kind of uh, the, the skilled white working class, started to feel that they were under existential threat, that they were going to lose their jobs, their families, their communities. And in many ways, they were quite right. And what problematically disco you know, enabled was for them to find an easy scapegoat to blame <laughs> for society's ills. Clearly, disco wasn't the source of the totally problems right. that the United States was facing at the end of the late 1970s. And clearly, people of color... Uh, people from the LGBTQ plus community and women weren't responsible for <laughs> America's wider economic problems just because they may have made some tiny incremental grains having faced systematic discrimination and marginalization historically. But they were an easy scapegoat and disco was something that people had, were found it easy to kind of hate upon by this particular point. And it was kind of the confluence of these two elements that kind of led to this, you know, this quite spectacular backlash. Tim and Chloe, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, too. Thanks so much for you. Yeah, yes. The co-curators of the Woody Guthrie Center's latest exhibit, Tim Lawrence, who is a cultural historian at the University of East London and author of Love Saves the Day, The History of American Dance Music, 1970-1979, and Chloe Forte, a program manager for the American Song Archive, the umbrella operation for uh, the Guthrie Center and the Bob Dylan Center, speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. 
Love Saves the Day, the Subterranean History of American Disco is on display at the Woody Guthrie Center through October 8th. Hours are Wednesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can learn more at WoodyGuthrieCenter.org. Right now we're going to leave you with one of the great anthems of the disco era, Gloria Gaynor and I Will Survive. Studio Tulsa is produced by Scott Gregory. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.